Have you ever wondered why you almost always get Sundays off work for most of the jobs in the West? And not only that, but have you ever reflected that your fathers and their fathers before them usually had Sunday off too? I mean, why is it Sunday? Why not Saturday? Like in Jewish and Seventh-day Adventist cultures. The reason we don't have Saturday as a day of rest in the West is because of the war I'm going to describe to you today, the First Judeo-Roman War, and the cataclysmic fall of the Temple of God, the fall of the Holies of Holies, the fall of that which could not fall. As Samuel Bacchiocci notes in his magisterial From Sabbath to Sunday Gentile anti-Jewish feeling bred during the Roman War with Judea, was the key reason early Christians decided to move their day of worship and rest from Saturday to Sunday. There were other reasons to be sure, I know, but a key, and as Samuel notes, perhaps the primary reason was to differentiate Christianity from Judaism, to highlight the differences between the two religions because anti-Jewish feeling was so widespread in the Roman world during the war for the Holy Land. So the next time you're kicking back and drinking a few beers on a Sunday, enjoying yourself and taking it easy in the Pacific sun, remember it was blood and shattered religions and burning temples and forced prostitution that ultimately gave you a day off. And how many of you knew about it before you heard my words caress your eardrum? And how many of our academic elites who can do nothing except in a herd say military history doesn't matter? It matters to them when they're tweeting out invectives against the most materially blessed civilization that has ever existed. But a lifespan that has tripled their fathers means very little to our elites today. And widespread food and almost universal basic housing means very little to our elites today. Instead, they are obsessed with liberating their fellow citizens, liberating me and liberating you. Friends, there never was total liberation. It is a great lie. John Rawls admits as much on pages 195 to 197 of the 2005 edition of Political Liberalism. He also obliquely agrees with Carl Schmidt on page 449 that money is a curse on democracy and threatens to turn the entire system we are living under into an oligarchy. You hear that sucking sound? That's another good-paying factory job being exported to Bangladesh. I hope you like working at McDonald's. Anyway, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and today I'm going to tell you about a war and a battle that impacts billions of people's lives today. But first, I've got to thank Martin for buying us around. If you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit that Make a Donation button. But now, I've got to tell you about one of the most important wars in human history. It's a war that directly impacts the religious beliefs of billions of people. It's a battle that almost destroyed Judaism, but which ultimately changed it from a religion of priests and temple to what Isaiah Gaffney calls a religion of rabbis and synagogues. It changed the whole rhythm of labor in the Western world, and for many, fulfilled a key prophecy of Jesus Christ. Millions were killed or wounded. Tens of thousands were sold in abject sex slavery, sharing the lustful bed of their own oppressors. It was a war that went on for years, starving years, killing years, city-wasting years. And this war didn't just affect Jerusalem, but there were massacres and anti-Jewish pogroms over much of the Roman world. What was it that Wittgenstein said at the end of his book? 
All of it is nonsense, a made-up ladder to see the world, friends. Today I'm building you a ladder of concrete reality, of facts, from which you can see the foundation stones of the world you're living in. Wittgenstein said you needed a ladder to see the world as it is, but friend, what you really need is fog lights to cut through the bullshit! This is Battlecast, and the lights are on. We cut through the shit, not for money or sinecures, but for participatory democracy and concrete reality to see the world as it really is. What was it Bukowski said? I knew that I was dying. Something in me said, go ahead, die, sleep, become them, accept. Then something else in me said, no, save that tiniest bit. It needed be much, just a spark. A spark can set a whole forest on fire, just a spark. Save it. I think I did. I'm glad I did. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. Today I'm going to tell you about a world where life is cheap. It's a world where if you can't pay your taxes, your entire city is enslaved and sold to pay them. From the mayor on down. I'm going to tell you about a world where nominal control of small kingdoms is bought from the powerful with the payment of 1,000 talents and 500 women. You heard that right. It's a world where the average death occurred anywhere between age 28 and 40, depending on the source you cite. This is Palestine around the time of Christ, a place of pain, death, slavery, and naked exploitation. For about a hundred years, the dynasty of Herod the Great ruled over Palestine. And it's important to know, there are many different Herods, plural. The founder of the dynasty, Herod the Great, died in 4 BC. Now, before the first Roman-Jewish war, Palestine was awash in bloody revolts. Peter Schaefer explains, quote, when Herod died, he decreed that three of his sons would become rulers of various parts of his kingdom. As was only to be expected, upon his death, the brothers quarreled over the inheritance and argued their claims before Caesar Augustus in Rome. At the same time, a number of disturbances and revolts broke out in Palestine, which were brutally suppressed by the governor of Syria, Varus. These revolts signaled the beginning of a long period of unrest, which led ultimately to the Great War with Rome. The center of unrest was in the north, in Galilee and Perea. In Galilee, a certain Judas organized a band of guerrillas who terrorized the whole of Galilee. In Perea, one of Herod's former slaves by the name of Simon proclaimed himself king. And finally, a former shepherd named Athrongis became the leader of an armed band who, together with his four brothers, terrorized all of Judea. What all these movements had in common was the obvious fact that they did not emanate from the cities but from the rural population, and that their various leaders laid claim to the title of king. End quote. So we have Herod's children, none of whom were full-blooded Jews, I might point out, fighting one another for control of Judea, which was a vassal kingdom of Rome. We have numerous rebellions led by various leaders who all claim to be the rightful king of Palestine. Notice many of these rebel leaders want to completely revolt against Rome and their puppets in Judea. Now, the Herodian prince that took over the heartland of Judea, where the city of Jerusalem and the temple were located, was Archelaus. 
He ruled for 10 years, and he inaugurated a reign of terror that was so horrible, a delegation of Jewish leaders went to Rome and convinced Caesar Augustus to depose the man. But there was a major consequence to this act. Rome became a direct sovereign in Judea. There were no more puppets acting as intermediaries anymore. From now on, Rome exercised direct rule in Judea with all its civil strife and sacred temples and brigandage, coupled with intense religious fervor, was made a province of Rome. Jewish taxes flowed straight into Roman pockets without any intermediaries. The results would be a disaster for hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people. Now, the province of Judea was ruled over by a procurator. He exercised powers of taxation, had the final say in judicial matters, sort of like a one-man Supreme Court, and he also exercised control over the military in the province. Think of the procurator as a governor, Supreme Court justice, and chief of military police all rolled into one. He was also in charge of the extensive network of spies and informants who happily reported on their neighbors for money. However, in general, the Jewish people in Judea exercised considerable autonomy in internal affairs, but they had no autonomy in matters of foreign policy. Once again, we have to quote Schmidt, Sovereign is he who decides. In Judea, Rome and the procurator were the ultimate deciders, no one else. Internally, an aristocracy of Jewish priests called the Sanhedrin had considerable, but not total, rule over the common people of Judea. When they allowed themselves to be ruled, that is, they were constantly revolting. Now, direct Roman rule in Judea lasted from 6 BC to 66 AD. During this time, there was an increasing radicalization of many, but not all, common Jewish people. They slowly, over the years, became more rebellious against the Romans. However, the upper classes of the Jewish people continued to flourish under Roman rule and tried to placate their Roman masters. This moves us to another general rule of human society. The wealthy in any given system tend to support that system. Corruption usually does work. And direct occupation provokes more resistance than rule by puppets. When Rome annexed Judea, an armed group of resistance fighters, who the Romans called brigands, began to coalesce around a man named Judas, who wasn't related to the famous Judas Iscariot from the Bible. Now, these people were called the Zealots, from which we get our English word zealous today. Josephus, our major ancient source for the Roman-Jewish war, explains it like this, quote, Judea was brought under direct Roman rule, and a Roman noble, Caponius, was sent as procurator with authority from Caesar to inflict the death penalty. In his time, a Galilean named Judas tried to stir the natives to revolt, saying that they would be cowards if they submitted to paying taxes to the Romans and after serving God alone accepted human masters in his stead. The zealots agreed in all other respects with the opinions of the Pharisees except that they have a passion for liberty that is almost unconquerable, since they are convinced that God alone is their leader and master. They think little of submitting to death in unusual forms and permitting vengeance to fall on kinsmen and friends if only they may avoid calling any man master, inasmuch as the people who have seen the steadfastness of their resolution amid such circumstances, I may forego any further account. For I have no fear that anything reported of them will be considered incredible. The danger is rather that report may minimize the indifference with which they accept the grinding misery of pain in Quote. Judas was himself a son of a war chief who had consistently fought the Herodian dynasty. 
And Judas's band of fighters was just one group. Josephus mentions many more groups like the Zealots. The Zealots are going to become one of the major combatants in the battle for Jerusalem, resisting until the very end and sincerely believing God will give them victory even as the Roman legions poured through the streets of Jerusalem itself. Peter Schaefer picks up the story, quote, The Zealots' pursuit of freedom found its clearest expression on the coins issued during the Jewish War, whose inscriptions, Freedom of Zion, and For the Redemption of Zion, give voice to the expectation of political liberty and eschatological redemption, every form of temporal power, and certainly that of an emperor who claimed divinity for himself, contradicts the sovereignty of God and must therefore be opposed. The zealots' radical concept of God and freedom is only comprehensible when seen in its radical, messianic, and social context. End quote. We don't know how the original zealot leader Judas died, but his movement lived on after him. So Judas, the original zealot leader, died. And we, like I said, we don't know how. And two of his sons, Simon and James, were also captured by the Romans and crucified as rebel leaders by the procurator Tiberius Alexander between 45 and 48 AD. Now, he had another son, Judas did. His younger son was named Menahem, and he played an important role in the Jewish war while his grandson Eleazar was commander of Masada, the last fortress to put up resistance to the Romans in this war. Now, the Judas family were stamped from pure Jewish steel. They were a family that was hard to kill. And in the meanwhile, Roman rule was lackluster and often difficult to live under. The mad emperor Caligula almost precipitated a revolt in Judea when he tried to set a statue of himself in the Jerusalem temple. Luckily, the statue was never actually placed in the temple because it would have caused a bloodbath. At the same time, Pontius Pilate took money from the temple treasury to build an aqueduct, an action that surely alienated many Orthodox Jews. Paul Johnson provides an excellent summary of Roman-Jewish relations in the time leading up to the Roman-Jewish War, so I'll just quote him, quote, Roman rule in 1st century AD Palestine was clumsy and unsuccessful. It was also chronically insolvent, and raids on the temple treasury for allegedly unpaid taxes were a source of outrage all the time. There were numerous unpunished bands of brigands, pirates basically, swollen by debtors and political malcontents. Many of the farmers were hopelessly in debt themselves in the towns with mixed Greek-Jewish populations, and there were many of these. The atmosphere was often tense between the two groups. Local vassal kings still sometimes acted as puppets for the Romans, but there was no doubt that the real power lay in the Roman procurator." End quote. Around 44 BC, the first stirrings of revolt began. A man named Theodos convinced a giant crowd of people to accompany him to the Jordan River where he promised he would part it and he and the crowd would walk across on dry land just like God had done for their ancestors at the Red Sea. Hallelujah. The procurator found out about the gathering, had the crowd violently dispersed and promptly parted Theodos' head from his body. The only walking he would be doing was into the next life. Nevertheless, more charismatic leaders came out of nowhere, forming huge bands of followers seemingly at will. Then the unthinkable happened. A famine struck Judea out of nowhere. The food harvest plummeted, but the Roman taxes on the crops stayed the same. 
The hardship on normal people simply increased support for the zealots. The Roman procurator Tiberius's informants worked overtime and found out the zealots were forming an opposition group. Now, Tiberius met this challenge by having a dialogue with them and forming a committee of reconciliation while providing good-paying, no-work jobs to the key zealot leaders in order to buy their allegiance. No, I'm just kidding. That's what the West would have done. Tiberius simply had the zealot leaders Simon and James, who were sons of Judas, the founder of the zealots, arrested and crucified. From 48 AD on, the violence only seemed to increase. A modern historian provides this summary, quote, There was a marked increase in violent confrontations. The first incident, which provoked public outrage, was triggered off during the Feast of Passover by a Roman soldier belonging to the cohort stationed in Jerusalem for the festival, who pulled up his garment and bent over indecently, turning his backside towards the Jews gathered in the temple. Basically, he mooned them. When the people then began to pelt the soldiers with stones, the procurator called in his army, thereby causing the Jews to stampede in panic and leading, according to Josephus, to 30,000 people being crushed to death. The next incident was provoked by, quote, bandits, almost certainly zealots, who robbed an imperial slave called Stephanus. As punishment, Ventidius Cumanus ordered the looting of the surrounding villages, during which a soldier tore up and burnt a Torah scroll. The procurator, fearing an open revolt, had the soldier put to death. The most serious incident occurred when a Galilean Jew was killed by Samaritans while on his way to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles. When Comanus, who had been bribed by the Samaritans, refused to have the perpetrator punished, bands of zealots led by a certain Eleazar, Danaeus, and Alexander, took their own revenge by laying waste to Samaritan villages and murdering the inhabitants. Comanus was able to quell the revolt quickly, but was subsequently deposed and sent into exile by the Emperor Claudius. This incident also swelled the ranks of the Zealots. By 52 AD, the Romans were continuously defeating and capturing numerous zealot groups and leaders. That's when the zealots struck upon a new way of raging war. They mingled within large crowds of major cities and would assassinate targets using daggers hidden in their cloaks. This way, it was impossible to prove who was responsible for the killings. This special type of zealot is referred to in the sources as Sicario from Sicca, a short curved dagger. Thus, the struggle was taken increasingly into the cities themselves, and especially Jerusalem. One of their victims was the high priest Jonathan. The zealots hated the priestly nobility, whom they regarded as exploiters of the people and friends of the Romans, end quote. Now, I should point out that when I said Cumanus a minute ago, he was the procurator of Judea at the time. To make matters war complicated, there arose charismatic holy men who were able to raise crowds and sometimes even small bands of armed followers. In addition, by the end of the 50s AD, Roman rule was breaking down. The procurator was unable to adequately protect his own bureaucracy, and many local aristocrats and priests began to employ their own small armies to protect themselves. The state was losing its monopoly on violence. The same thing happened in the late 80s and early 90s in South Africa. The state was no longer able to protect its own bureaucrats in the African township areas. South African police and community leaders were targeted and often killed. The minority South African government was unable to control the violence cascading throughout the country, and it spread to so-called 
Safe areas, too. Sports bars in Durban were blown apart by bombs. A bus full of people in Natal were assassinated. Open warfare raged in township streets and in the major cities themselves. This is precisely what began happening in Judea. No one was safe. Violence was everywhere. The priestly nobility enriched themselves at the expense of the lower clergy by stealing their tithes so that the regular priests were driven into the arms of the zealots. In the early 60s AD, the Emperor Nero began to discriminate against Jews in favor of Greeks in the province of Judea itself, thereby further inflaming the resistance against Roman rule. It was during this time that James, the brother of Jesus, and the man who many Christians believe wrote the New Testament book of James, was executed by the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. This was a big deal because only the Roman procurator was supposed to have the capacity to implement the death sentence in Judea legally. Now even the Sanhedrin itself was flouting Roman rule. What was it? Shakespeare said. My soul aches when I see two authorities are of, neither supreme. How soon confusion runs between the gap of both and overthrow one by the other. In 62 AD, a new procurator named Albinus arrived in Judea. He soon gave up the fight against the zealots, trading short-term peace and luxury for long-term security. Consequently, the zealots were able to freely organize and take control of large sways of the countryside. The zealots became the de facto rulers for much of the small towns throughout Judea. They organized armed bands. They taxed the populace. It was the worst thing Albinus could have done, but he didn't give a shit because he was busy enriching himself through flagrant bribery and corruption. And when he was recalled back to Rome, he had the worst criminals in his prisons executed, and then he released the rest, who promptly joined the ranks of the growing anti-Roman resistance movement. Josephus believes Albinus, judging the situation to be hopeless, deliberately did this to speed up the inevitable revolt in Judea. That way, his tenure as ruler would look better when compared against his successor, who actually was driven out by the zealots. Never underestimate man's capacity to cover his own ass. Finally came the last procurator, Gessius Florus, who reigned from 64 to 66 AD. He was the worst one of all, according to Josephus. Compared with him, the reign of his predecessor had been peaceful and successful. Florus tried to extort the maximum possible amount of taxes from the province, which was now descending into total chaos. When he plundered the temple treasury, probably in an attempt to make up the ever-worsening deficit in tax revenues resulting from the desperate economic situation, open revolt broke out in Jerusalem. Albinus smiled when the news came back to him in Rome. No one was thinking about him now. His plan had worked. Then he promptly went back to enjoying his new sex slave and the delights of his bedroom. Paul Johnson provides this excellent overview of the opening stages of the revolt. So I'll just quote him again. Quote, the revolt itself began in 66 AD, not in Jerusalem, but in Caesarea, following a Greco-Jewish lawsuit, which the Greeks won. They celebrated with a pogrom in the Jewish quarter while the Greek-speaking Roman garrison did nothing. The news caused uproar in Jerusalem and feelings were raised still further when Florus chose that moment to take money from the temple treasury. Fighting broke out. The Roman troops looted the upper town. 
The temple priests suspended the sacrifices in honor of the people and the emperor of Rome, and furious arguments broke out between moderate and militant Jews. Jerusalem was filling up with angry and vengeful Jewish refugees from other cities where the Greek majority had invaded the Jewish quarters and burnt down their homes. This element turned the tide in favor of the extremists, and the Roman garrison was attacked and massacred. And so the Great Revolt was a civil and racial war between Greeks and Jews, but it was also a civil war among Jews themselves. Because, as in the time of Maccabees, the Jewish upper class, largely assimilated to Greek ways, was identified with the sins of the Greeks. As the radical nationalists took over Jerusalem, they turned on the rich. One of the first acts was to burn the temple archive so that all records of debts would be destroyed. The Great Revolt had begun in, quote, Consider a small, insignificant spark. It leaps from a small fire and catches in a bed of fallen leaves. The spark hungrily feeds on the leaves like a lusty baby on its mother's milk-squirting breast, and from the spark comes the flame. The flame digests yet more arboreal detritus and yields up a small fire. That's when nature renders up limitless fuel for the tsunami-like flames, and so the small fire transforms into a city-destroying wildfire. The ultimate source... Of the largest wildfire is the most insignificant spark, and so the wildfire death of our cities is born and bred in the thinly inhabited countryside. As of today, over four million acres of California has been burned as a result of wildfires. These fires, born in the middle of nowhere, have destroyed over 10,000 buildings and killed scores of people. Such was the way the revolt broke out all over Judea. The zealots, under the leadership of Menahem, captured the fortress of Masada, which would later become an epicenter of suicidal resistance to foreign Roman occupation. Masada was a rebellion leader's dream come true. A major armory was located in the fort. Menahem outfitted his most trusted soldiers with these weapons and then promptly marched back to Jerusalem, where he entered the city like a king, replete with a retinue of highly motivated fanatics who were now armed to the teeth. At the same time in Jerusalem, the temple captain Eleazar, son of Ananias, the high priest, ordered the suspension of the daily sacrifice for the emperor. This was the last straw, which signaled a total break with Rome and the start of a major war. Then a sort of mini-civil war broke out in Jerusalem itself between the remaining members of the peace party who desired reconciliation with Rome and the zealots who now had support of Eleazar, the temple captain, who had his own small army, if you remember. Now, the peace party represented Herod and his court, the high priests and the Pharisees, the famous religious school prominent in the New Testament. The conflict took on dramatic overtones of class revolt, and the wealthy elite asked King Herod Agrippa for military aid. Agrippa attempted to rescue his fellow puppets, but was himself easily defeated by the zealots. After bitter hand-to-hand -hand fighting in the streets of the holy city, King Agrippa's troops were driven back to Herod's palace and besieged. In addition, the small Roman garrison withdrew into three fortified towers and were themselves besieged. It was then that the rebels set out to fundamentally change the constitution of the city. They began burning the palaces and records of the wealthy. They started making their own coins, which historian Stephen Mason discusses at length in his book, A History of the Jewish War. They dated their coins year one. Time itself had been shaped in the revolution. Religious war had fused with ethnic war and class war, a trifecta of grievances that spread disfigurement and bloody death throughout the streets and gardens of Jerusalem. 
the famous Jewish historian Josephus explains, quote, Then the rebels took their fire to the record office, eager to destroy the moneylenders' bonds and so make impossible the recovery of debts, in order to secure the support of an army of debtors and enable the poor to rise with impunity against the rich, end quote. And the debtors swarmed into the ranks of the rebels. And the rich puppets of Rome had enjoyed luxury and still unrivaled even today. Sex slaves, bellies satiating wine, inverted views in a city where normal people were suffused like a tea bag and grinding poverty and ceaseless filth. It's dangerous to be wealthy in such conditions. As for myself, my ideal nation, which I know I can't make, would be like the Shire in the book The Hobbit, a nation of working people who enjoy their small luxuries and mind their own damn business. Shakespeare said it like this, Almighty Lord, what man would give his life to the forever discontented masses in public service while he can enjoy such peaceful walks as I take? This small property I own, my noble father gave me, fills me with content, and is worth more than a presidency. I don't grow fat by the hunger of other people. I'm content to maintain my own property, and I always take care of the poor in my own community. End quote. Now this is the voice of a land grown rich in peace, where swords are seen only in museums, where neighbors tell the same jokes and struggle with the same sins. It's a land where people see the same events in the same light, where standards are suffused like sugar in southern sweet tea throughout the population. How different such a world looks from the infantile excesses daily on display across the length and breadth of our once peaceful lands, plural. Friends, if you can learn to be content with safety, with peace, with food in your belly, and disdain for lurid fame, how much better would we all be? But the rulers of Jerusalem chose a different route, a route of unbridled luxury. They rode the tiger, and in 66 AD, they fell off. The next step in the rebels' plan was to isolate and take each enemy stronghold one by one. Now the castle-like Antonia fortress fell first. The rebels massacred the entire garrison and set the building ablaze. Next, they turned their astute attention on King Herod Agrippa's palace. Herod's garrison was heavily outnumbered and didn't dare venture from the palace walls, but any zealot who came near was cut down by arrow fire. Herod had enough men to hold out for the time being. Consequently, the zealot leader Menahem decided to make a deal with the local, largely Jewish, soldiers of the puppet king. They were offered safe passage out of the city if they surrendered the palace, and the soldiers agreed, not a bad deal. Not one of Herod's surrendering troops was killed, not one. They sauntered out of the palace like a University of Alabama running back after scoring a touchdown, all smiles and confident self-assurance. Now, the very next day, the high priest Ananias was found hiding near the river and was summarily executed. Law had now disappeared. The whole country was in one giant state of exception. By this time, most of the former leaders of Jerusalem had either fled or been massacred. Menahem thought he had no rivals for power in the city, but there was one man who disagreed. Eliezer, the son of the high priest Ananias who was massacred for daring to exist under Menahem's rule. Eliezer, the temple captain, openly attacked Menahem. The famous historian Josephus explains what happened next, quote, Eliezer and his friends laid their plans to attack Menahem in the temple, where he had gone to pay his devotions, arrayed in royal robes and attended by his suite of armed fanatics. When Eliezer 
and his companions rushed upon him. Menahem and his followers offered a momentary resistance. Then, seeing themselves assailed by the whole multitude, they fled whithersoever they could. All who were caught were massacred, and a hunt was made for any in hiding. A few succeeded in escaping by stealth to Masada. Menahem himself was caught, dragged into the open, and after being subjected to all kinds of torture, put to death. His lieutenants, along with Absalom, his most eminent supporter in the tyranny, met with a similar fate. A few days before, Menahem had been king of the city. His men had summarily busted down any door and massacred anyone who stood in his way. They had searched every nook and crevice of the city like a woman interrogating a man about a past indiscretion. Menahem's royal clothes and his exhilarated followers proclaimed him king, but just a few hours later, he was openly tortured in the streets, his body cut apart, and finally he was murdered, a king of nothing, his supposedly royal blood mixing with the running dung and awful of donkeys. What was it our fathers used to say? Poor and content is rich in money enough, but limitless riches are as poor as a winter field to the man that lives in fear. He is poorest of all. Now Menahem had joined the ranks of the fallen. He thought he would be a king, but today he doesn't even rank a blurb in the Encyclopedia Britannica. At this time, Eliezer took control of the rebellion, the Roman garrison. Having seen the good treatment given to Herod's surrendering soldiers, tried to make the same deal with the insurrectionists encircling them. Now I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the Romans. Imagine the highest building you've ever seen, and you've ever been inside, and you look out over a city filled with an ocean of swarming people who are actively trying to kill you. You're totally outnumbered. There's no way you can fight your way out the city. Your former leaders have abandoned you. What would you do? How would you feel? Every day you walked on eggshells. Your stomach quivers with every sound. You get no sleep. You begin to measure the span of your life in hours rather than years. What would you do? Well, I can tell you what the Romans did. They tried to make a deal. And the zealot leaders agreed to allow the Romans safe passage if they surrendered. And then, when the Romans agreed and they exited their fortified towers, throwing down their arms in the process, they were promptly massacred to the last man. Reading about it, I was reminded of Queen Cersei's troops throwing down their arms at the end of the Game of Thrones television series, only to find themselves shown no mercy, turning the streets of Jerusalem into a blood-drenched slip-and-slide. The contemporary chronicler Josephus describes the scene this way, quote, So long as the Roman soldiers retained their weapons, none of the rebels molested them or gave any indication of treachery. But when, in accordance with the covenant, they had all laid down their bucklers and swords, and with no suspicion remaining were taking their departure, Eliezer's party fell upon them, surrounded and massacred them, the Romans neither resisting nor suing for mercy, but merely appealing with loud cries to the covenant, the oath we may, ah, thus brutally butchered, perished all save their captain, Metilius, who alone saved his life by entreaties and promises to turn to the Jewish religion and even be circumcised. The rest were brutally slain, end quote. Deals, paper, covenant. The men had peace until they put their weapons down. And when they put their weapons down, all the deals and all the covenants went out the window. Now Roman Judea, 
At this time was not composed solely of Jews, but people from all over the Roman Empire lived in and around Judea. There were hundreds of thousands of Greeks and Syrians, and many more besides these. Now these communities who had lived in relative peace for generations. You don't have to write me that email. I know there were conflicts. I know there were deaths and pogroms. I said relative peace compared to the slaughter I'm about to describe in this series. Anyways, these communities began to turn on one another at this time. It started in a town called Caesarea. And I witnessed to many of these disorders. Josephus can tell what happened better than I can. Quote, The inhabitants of Caesarea massacred the Jews who resided in their city. Within one hour, more than 20,000 were slaughtered, and Caesarea was completely emptied of Jews, for the fugitives were arrested by orders of Florus and conducted in chains to the dockyards. The news of the disaster at Caesarea infuriated the whole nation, and parties of Jews sacked the Syrian villages throughout the region. The zealots then fell upon seven more Gentile cities, destroying or setting fire to all in their path. Four more large cities, the rebels burned to the ground. In the vicinity of each of these cities, many villages were pillaged and immense numbers of inhabitants captured and slaughtered. For their part, the Syrians on their side killed no less a number of Jews. They too slaughtered those whom they caught in their towns, not merely from hatred, but also to forestall the peril which menaced them. The whole of Syria was a scene of frightful disorder. Every city was divided into two camps, and the safety of one party lay in their anticipation of the other. They passed their days in blood, their nights yet more dreadful in terror. For, though believing that they had rid themselves of the Jews, still each city had its own Judaizers, who aroused suspicion. These were converts to Judaism from the Greek population. And while they shrunk from killing offhand this doubtful element in their midst, they feared these neutrals as much as pronounced aliens. Even those who had long been reputed the very mildest of men were instigated by avarice to murder their adversaries. For they would then with impunity plunder the property of their victims and transfer to their own homes, as from a battlefield the spoils of the slain. And he who gained the most covered himself with glory as the most successful murderer. One saw cities choked with unburied corpses, dead bodies of old men and infants exposed side by bloody side, poor women stripped of the last covering of modesty, the whole province full of indescribable horrors. And even worse than the story of atrocities committed was the suspense caused by the menace of evils yet still to come. The remaining cities in the region rose up against their Jewish populations. Tens of thousands were slain. Massacres bubbled over the Roman Empire. And now that disorder had become universal the local greek population rioted to expel the jews then on one occasion when the alexandrians were holding a public meeting a large number of jews flocked into the amphitheater along with the greeks their adversaries the instant they caught sight of them raised shouts of enemies spies and then rushed forward to lay hands on them the majority of the jews took flight and scattered but three of them were caught by the Alexandrians and dragged off and burned alive. Thereupon, the whole Jewish colony rose to the rescue. First, they hurled stones at the Greeks and then, snatching up torches, rushed to the amphitheater, threatening to consume the assembled citizens in the flames to the very last man. And this they would actually have done had not Tiberius Alexander, the governor of the city, curbed their fury. First, however, he attempted to stop them 
without recourse to arms, but the rioters only ridiculed this exhortation and used abusive language at Tiberius, understanding then that nothing but the infliction of severe lessons would quell the rebels. Tiberius let loose upon them the two Roman legions stationed in this city to complete the ruin of the Jewish population. These Roman legionnaires were given permission not merely to kill the rioters, but also to plunder their property and burn down their homes. The troops thereupon rushed to the Jewish quarter where the Jews were concentrated and executed their orders, but not without bloodshed on their own side, for the Jews closed their ranks and put their best armed men in the front line, who offered a prolonged resistance. But when once these elites gave way, wholesale carnage ensued. Death in every form was theirs. Some were caught in the plain, others driven into their homes, to which the Romans set fire after stripping them of their contents. There was no pity for infancy, no respect for years. All ages fell before their murderous assault, trained soldier against virgin daughters, mothers slaughtered as they desperately tried to shield their little children from the blood-hungry swords until the whole district was deluged with blood and the heaps of corpses numbered 50,000, even the remnant would not have escaped had they not sued for quarter. Alexander, now moved to compassion, ordered the Romans to retire. But the local Alexandrian populace, in their intensity of their hate, were not so easily called off and were with difficulty torn from the corpses of the Jewish people they had killed. These scenes repeated themselves across the Greco-Roman world. A few cities, like Antioch, saw no persecution of either Jews or Greeks, but in most cities, one side or the other was at best expelled or at worst liquidated. The angel of death had appeared once again in the east. End quote. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, Eliezer was now firmly in control of the holy city. All resistance, religious, elite, Roman, insurrectionists crushed all of them. But there was one force that might still overwhelm Eliezer, the Roman governor of Syria, Cestius Gallus, along with an entire legion of Roman troops comprising thousands of well-trained Roman soldiers, along with thousands of poorly trained local militias, slowly began the long march south towards Jerusalem. They were joined by King Herod, who served as a sort of guide for the Roman army. But the army never made it. One of the most important battles of the entire conflict was decided outside of the sacred city. It was called the Battle of Beth Horon, and it took place in late October 66 AD. On their way to reconquer Judea, the Romans found many cities abandoned and promptly commenced to pillaging them. As the Romans and their allies spread out to gain more gold, kind of like Sherman's March, they're spreading into a wide area to gain more plunder. As they did this, they were undone by their greed. An army of Jews fell on a small grouping of Romans and slaughtered about 2,000 of them. Still, Gallus and his legionnaires pressed on towards Jerusalem. Villages and towns along the way fell to the Romans, and thousands of local Jews were summarily executed. No one knows the exact number. Another 2,000 Jewish rebels fell in a skirmish with the heavily armed Roman legionnaires. The Jewish light infantry broke, and then the Roman horses spilled among them the way little kids dumped their toys across a playroom just everywhere. How can a man even describe this scene? Picture in your mind a short spear 
fountaining out of the chest of a fleeing soldier, the way the baby alien in the first Alien film erupts from the chest of his victim. Picture yourself fleeing on the battlefield. The ground literally trembles and vibrates. Suddenly, it's a virgin about to embrace her lover for the first time, all tremulous vibrations. The hooves thunderclap in your ear. Your eardrum is working double time, hammering audio signals into your brain that literally shiver down your spine, send your eyes gaping wide, desperately searching for relief, some place to hide, a boulder, a rock, anything, but there is is no safety in your wild desperate eyes see nothing but red white flashes of giant ghost-like horses impaling your friends all around you the screams of your countrymen play a symphony of satan these are the sounds of your death concerto and then your time comes first you hear the by now familiar sound of clapping hooves but this time they are louder intimate and you feel them hammering from the ground itself the physical sensation melding with the audio waves to form a combined terror assault on your senses. Then, suddenly, the ground gives way under you and you are shoved into the earth the way a professional wrestler might body slam a seven-year-old. The ground hits you faster than your mind can process what is happening. You try to get up, but you are pinned to the ground. There is no pain, not yet. You are too overwhelmed with shock and a cocktail of adrenaline to feel pain, but you do feel wet warmth spread over your chest. You do smell the sickly iron stench of blood mixing with the more familiar smell of soil. It's your blood pulling under you, and then you realize that you are impaled and you squirm, involuntarily kicking your legs, a human mouse in a giant trap, and you are just as stuck as a little mouse. Then the pain floods over you, mixing with the warmth and the terror and the iron smell, and your breathing slows, and you begin to involuntarily shake. Now your breath is barely audible, and an ocean of blackness takes your consciousness away, and then you die. Just one tragedy amidst a field of thousands. The Romans don't even notice your body. Just another idiot peasant who dared to defy the might of Rome. They laugh and they joke as they search the dead bodies, your dead body, for valuables. Their black humor would make the writers of Monty Python fall on their knees and pray like Amish schoolgirls suddenly confronted with the ceaseless profanity and sacrilegious idolatry of modern Saturday Night Live or the 16 seasons of the television show World's Dumbest. These people believe in nothing, you might say, if you heard their darkest jokes, their inhuman mirth. And you, listener, are you one of them? As the Roman army proceeded south from Galilee, the report of their approach caused the entire countryside to rally to the zealots. After yet another skirmish, which the Romans lost, the Roman puppet king Herod sent his personal friends to parley with the rebel leaders to see if we can make a deal. They were prepared to offer a full pardon for anyone who would lay down arms and join the Roman side. But before they could even speak one syllable, the leaders of the zealots dismembered the two Roman emissaries and personal friends of King Herod. So much for negotiations. Any local Jew who complained about the mistreatment of the emissaries was himself stoned and driven out of the community. Dialogue, far from offering a solution, had ceased to even be a possibility. At this point, Gaulus, who, if you remember, is the commander of the Roman troops, brought his army to the very gates of the city, Jerusalem. The Romans captured all the city's suburbs outside the gates and slowly besieged Jerusalem until they reached the very walls of the city itself. For five days, the Romans pressed their attack on the city, scaling the walls at all points. And for five days of bitter fighting, the zealots drove them back. And on the sixth day, Josephus claims the Romans made a furious assault 
on the temple itself, actually capturing a section of the temple walls, whereupon the Romans formed the tortoise formation, linking their shields one on top of another to form a mobile armored wall capable of resisting almost all spears and arrows. Turtle-like, slowly, the Romans pressed forward, then inexplicably, Cestius Gallus recalled his troops and withdrew right on the verge of a major Roman victory. Tens of thousands of men and women would die because of this decision, more like hundreds of thousands. And the ancient historian Josephus believes that if Gallus had pressed on in his attack, the city would have fallen. I should point out that many modern historians think Josephus is mistaken and Gallus likely had a good reason to pull back. The choice is yours to decide, listener. History lays the cards on the table. I just read them to you. As the Romans withdrew, the zealots attacked them around the edges, working bitter death into the rear guard. Josephus picks up the story, quote, The following day, by continuing his retreat, he invited further opposition from the enemy, hanging upon his heels like a dogged wolf. They cut up his rear, and enclosing the troops on either side of the route, poured their missiles on the flanks of the column. The rear ranks did not dare to turn around and face those who were wounding them from behind, supposing they were pursued by an innumerable host. The result was that they suffered heavily without any retaliation upon their foes, and more than Roman troops died with each arrow that fell. But every missile that struck the tender flesh of a Roman chipped away at the myth of Roman invulnerability. These Romans were men, infidels, who could be killed like any man. And as the Jews achieved more and more little victories against the Romans, so popular support for the revolt grew and grew. All along the withdrawal route, men were continually being struck, torn from the ranks and floundering on the ground, writhing like wide-eyed fish, ravenous for water. At length, after numerous casualties, the army reached their former camp after having abandoned the greater part of their baggage. Here... Gallus halted for two days, uncertain what course to pursue, but on the third, seeing the enemy's strength greatly increase and all the surrounding country swarming with the enemy, he decided that the delay had been detrimental to him. To accelerate the retreat, he gave orders to destroy all impediments to speed, so the mules, asses, and all the beasts of burden were killed, excepting those that carried missiles and engines of war. Gallus then led his army on down the road to Beth Horon. On the open ground, their movements were less harassed, but once the Romans had begun the descent through the narrow mountain passes, one party of the enemy went ahead of them and barred their escape. Another drove the rear guard down into a ravine, while the main body lined the heights above the narrowest parts of the route and covered the legions with showers of endless arrows. Here, while even the infantry were hard put, to defend themselves, the cavalry were in still greater jeopardy. To advance in order down the road under the hail of darts was impossible. To charge up the slopes was impossible for horses. On either side were steep cliffs and bottomless drops, down which they slipped and were hurled to destruction, bashing their exploding skulls against the club-like edges of the rocks below them. There was no room for flight, no conceivable means of defense. In their utter helplessness, the troops were reduced to groans and the wailings of despair, which were answered by the war whoops of the Jews, which mingled shouts of exultation and fury. Gaulus and his entire army were, indeed, within an ace of being captured. Only the intervention of night enabled the Romans to find refuge in Beth Horan. The Jews occupied all the surrounding points and kept a lookout for their departure. Meanwhile, 
Gallus laid plans for secret flight. Selecting about four hundred of his bravest men, he posted them upon the roofs with orders to shout out the watchwords of the camp sentinels that the Jews might think his whole army was organizing to fight them. He himself, with the remainder, then snuck away another four miles. At daybreak, the Jews, discovering that the enemy's quarters were deserted, rushed upon the 400 who had deluded them and ran them through with their flesh-hungry javelins and then hastened in pursuit of Gallus. Gallus had gained much upon them during the night, and when day came, quickened his flight to such a pace that the men, in consternation and terror, abandoned their battering rams, catapults, and most of the other machines, which the Jews then captured and afterwards employed against their Roman countrymen. The Jews continued the pursuit for many miles, and then, failing to overtake the Romans, turned and carried off the machines, plundered the corpses, collected the booty which had been left on the route, and, with songs of triumph, retraced their steps back to Jerusalem. Their own lives losses had been hardly any. Of the Romans and their allies, they had slain 5,300 infantry and 480 of the cavalry. The great revolt was just beginning. Now, the importance of the zealot victory at Beth Horon cannot be overstated. Peter Schaefer explains, This victory was of great significance for future developments. Even the remaining Jewish opponents of the war were carried away by the general exhilaration of this initial triumph, while the radicals no doubt regarded this victory as heralding the final war of extermination against the despised Romans. By now, minting already had begun of the first coins dated according to the years of the revolt. The rebels now began, for the first time since the outbreak of the revolt, to organize the war systematically. Remarkably, leadership still lay in the hands of the predominantly moderate upper classes, that is, the high priests and the fair rather than with the ultra-radical zealots. Commanders were dispatched to all the individual regions called Taparkis of the province to carry out the military organization of the rebellion, end quote. Now the rebellion really took root. Small villages and outlying districts were systematically incorporated into the war effort. If the rebels had defeated the Romans when they were disorganized, how much more would they defeat them now that all of Judea was organized to repulse any Roman advance? A new dawn was rising. Judea would be free from outside pagan influence. But back in Rome, there was a steel resolve to reconquer the lost province and reassert Roman authority. These two groups were heading for an inevitable collision. A collision that would change the face of two religions forever. A collision that would literally change the nature of the work week for 2,000 years. A collision that would cost millions of lives. But that's next month's podcast. And that's another one of the books for me, ladies and gentlemen. If you enjoyed this show today, I'd personally appreciate it if you take a minute or two and give me a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to this program on. But before I go, I've got to address a few emails I received asking me about the latest presidential election. A few of you wanted to know my thoughts about it. Friend, why don't you write me an email asking me why the American family is falling apart? Why don't you write in and ask me why more than half of adult American and European women live alone, their childless apartments echoing with loneliness, reverberating with silence. What am I saying? I'm saying your personal family is infinitely more important than any election. Who do you think will help you when no one else will? You wealthy listeners, who was it that helped you get ahead in life sacrificially cashing a check to help you go through college or to help you when your car broke down? And I'm not stupid. Many of you are thinking, Luke, you don't know my family. My family is a piece of shit. 
friend, you're right, I don't know your family, but I know you. And I'm one of those slack-jawed hicks who cares about my fellow citizens. I'm telling you to be the foundation stone of your family. You may have horrible parents, but I'm telling you to make yourself a better parent. You may have a mother who abandoned you, but I'm telling you to cling to your children, shelter them from a cruel world that smiles and claims it cares about them, but all it really has for them is more divorce, loneliness, more debt. Be the fathers and the mothers you wish you had. Be the solid foundation of a better civilization without hate for others, with envy for none. Be the change you want to see. What do I think about the latest election and Tucker Carlson's commentary on Trump's latest policies? I think you should forget about that and go read a picture book to your children. I think you should treat the women you date with basic compassion and dignity. I think you should be the change you want to see. Is there problems with our government? Yes, there are. But corrupt trees bring forth corrupt fruit. Corruption and flawed government have always existed. The government is going to take more of your money and waste it. Give it to their friends. It's called nepotism, and it's existed for all human history. Don't get me wrong. Better government can exist, but not with half a population of single mothers barely scraping by. They're going to want help, and if it takes socialism to get it, they'll take socialism. Their eyes don't see past their kids' bedroom and medical bills. Now, I know some of you are struggling. I'm not telling you to make your family rich. I'm telling you to do your damn duty. If you can only get a job at Burger King, get over to Burger King and give your kids the best life you can on a Burger King paycheck. But more than that, when your ass ain't at Burger King, give your kids your time. It doesn't cost anything to play basketball with them. It doesn't cost anything to read them a free book on your cell phone. Maybe your ex-wife is a bitch, but your five-year-old daughter is not. You emailed me about the election, and I told you about your sons and your daughters. They are infinitely more important than Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Yes, the government's corrupt. Yes, you woke up one day, and you don't recognize your culture. It's frothing over with stupidity and overflowing cappuccino of idiocy. Make the culture you want to see. Be the neighbor you want to have. Be the fathers and mothers you wish you had. And then I promise... The idiocy will recede, not a lot, but some. And in the middle of darkness, there is light. In the middle of yin, there is yang. In the middle of evil, there is yet some purity. What do I think of an election? Hang the election. Be the change you want to see, and in a hundred or two hundred years, your man will win the election. An avalanche must fall. A corrupt people will have the kind of government they want and they love. They'll have the kind of media they deserve. You can't stop the avalanche, but you can save yourself and those you care about. And so the answer to the last election is your legacy with your children and the people around you. So be wise as a serpent and peaceful as a dove. Be a man who takes care of his own people, because if you don't, you're less than an infidel. Not Biden, not Trump, you. Not right, not left, above. And until next month, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye. Oh, yeah. I've also got to thank John Favreau for finally making the real sequel to Star Wars, The Mandalorian. When we saw Luke Skywalker, my old dad literally nodded his head, cracked a beer, and said, Why couldn't they have done that 20 years ago? So this beer's for you, John, Martin, Mark from Birmingham, and you too, dear listener. Bye. <laughs>